0: Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Coming up on this week's episode, we'll be joined by Jasmine Johnson. She's the VP of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at ICSC. We'll talk with Jasmine about not only these issues and how they touch the commercial real estate world, But also how they touch the retail world and what strides need to be taken on this front for the benefit of everyone in retail. In news, we'll touch on Dollar General's recent update as we kind of previewed last year. And in our looking ahead story, we'll look ahead to in-store bakery and the impact it may have on grocery stores coming up in 2023. Our quick weekly obligatory reminder, you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. So as we talked about last week, wanted to dip into Dollar General. Honestly, we thought about instead covering Kroger or a few other retailers. But Dollar General provided an update as far as their store growth plans for this next year. And we felt it pertinent to kind of cover that on the show Now, Dollar General did miss on earnings in terms of analyst expectations, but they revealed a surprising increase, or at least surprising for us, in commercial real estate projects for the 2023 fiscal year. And really, that's the main reason we wanted to look ahead at the earnings call, because usually the third quarter earnings call is when they have more concrete real estate guidance for the next year. Rather than a potential cutback in projects due to skyrocketing construction costs, something we touched on last week, they're actually going the other direction for next year and increasing the number of real estate projects they're embarking on between store openings and renovations. But first, let's talk about their numbers for the quarter that was. They actually bested family dollars comps with same-store sales up an impressive 6.8%. And while this is roughly in line with inflation for the merchandise categories they market in aggregate, we should also remember that like other stores in the segment, their price points have remained more stagnant than other retailers. And for Dollar General, this has been amplified by their efforts to keep a set number of products at a $1 price point as an attempt to kind of shoot back at Dollar Tree's increase in their own base price point. A year ago. In fact, they went out of their way on the earnings call, did Dollar General, to note that the comps on their $1 price point items outperformed comps in the rest of the store at large. So while we can talk about inflation and obviously same store sales keeping pace with inflation, the reality of it is they're seeing more unit sales, especially on the lower price point items as a whole, as I mentioned, those comps outperformed those that came in in the 4% range for Dollar General, but they lagged Dollar Tree just slightly, owing largely to that increase in the base price point at Dollar Tree. For Dollar General, they expect similar comps going forward, right around the 6 to 7% range for the fourth quarter. Overall year-over-year comp growth for around 4 to 4.5% for the fiscal year as a whole. They're coming off of a first and second quarter where comps kind of lagged due to significant quarters in Q1 and Q2 of 2021. Now due to their ever-expanding store base as a whole, their net sales increased 11.1%, which in turn resulted in a 10.5% increase in operating profit year over year. Although on an earnings per share basis, as I alluded to just a few moments ago, They came in short of analyst expectations, earnings of $2.33 per share versus $2.55 per share forecast. Part of their shortcomings on the margin front were attributed to internal supply chain stresses. And this part, the supply chain part that is, was a bit surprising given that the retailers we've discussed recently have all noted a reduction in certain distribution expenses. Dollar General leadership, including CEO Jeff Owen, was resolute in the idea, though, that these supply chain stresses are temporary for them and they should see costs begin to abate in future quarters. Both distribution and transportation costs rose this last quarter for Dollar General, and part of the issue in terms of distribution for them was simply that they outgrew their current distribution center capacity. Now, they anticipated this to some extent, They had plans to leverage temporary storage facilities, particularly for non-consumable merchandise, in certain regions until more permanent warehouses could be built. They have several in their pipeline, but they looked at it and they said coming into this year, hey, we're going to construct some temporary storage, some temporary warehouses, and then distribute products from those until the DCs that we're building are completely online. But there were a lot of delays, and this is something that we have talked about constantly in 2022 on the show. And These delays include permitting. Permitting has been an issue as cities are backlogged in terms of processing permits. Some of this caused by the pandemic. Some of this caused by, well, just lack of people working at these cities as they try to back hire just like everyone else out there. And so, as a result of the permitting issues, as a result of the construction issues, in building these temporary facilities, that's caused issues in opening the facilities. And this, combined with seasonal merchandise arriving earlier for them this year than last year, that resulted in $40 million more in additional supply chain costs during the quarter. Anytime you see $40 million in unexpected cost, that will, of course, erode your margins at the end of the day. Now, these inefficiencies have been mitigated somewhat so far in the fourth quarter because they've been able to open facilities in Georgia and Texas. These facilities kind of serve as way stations for imported goods. Basically, the goods stop off at these facilities before they're shipped to the distribution centers. They said the opening of these facilities, the fact that they are online, has mitigated their need for some of the temporary storage. Overall, their distribution center capacity, that's expected to increase by 20% over the next 18 months, with new facilities in Nebraska, Colorado, Arkansas, and Oregon all slated to come online in the next year and a half. So this is the reason they chalked up the rise in distribution and transportation costs to growing pains. They felt like they had a temporary solution in place. They had planned for it it's not like they didn't plan for additional storage to support their ever-growing store base but the solution they had didn't pan out as expected part of it due to permitting and construction so you see increased costs for them in this quarter they do feel though on a go forward basis like these costs will be mitigated somewhat another thing that also rose for them on the balance sheet was inventories on a dollar cost basis inventories were up 28.4 percent on a per store basis this is a massive increase year over year for the quarter and as with other retailers they noted the increase in product cost as one reason for the bump up in inventories by over 25 percent but the increase in inventories was just as much due to their changing merchandise mix unlike dollar tree and family dollar who again we talked about last week they're seeking a greater consumables portion of their mix dollar general is pivoting away from consumables slightly as a way to drive margins because those non-consumables they're going to have greater margins and of course dollar general's pop shelf concept is certainly contributing to this where a lot fewer consumables sold in their pop shelf stores So what this has resulted in is higher value products being stocked in stores, particularly when you look at their home goods categories and their seasonal categories. As a result, the merchandise that they're carrying in stores, it's got a greater value than it had 12 months ago. And it should be noted, I think this is interesting, despite this pivot away from carrying as much consumable merchandise as in the past, Actual merchandise sold in the quarter actually saw the mix tilt even more towards consumables for them, and that, of course, dented margins a little bit further, and they expect this to continue in the fourth quarter as they attract a cost-conscious customer, and so far they've seen consumable sales be solid in the fourth quarter, which, again, is great news, but it might come at the cost of margins. Also, the timing of the quarter contributed to the big year-over-year jump in inventory amounts because, again... As I mentioned, they received seasonal merchandise earlier this year versus last year. Of course, we heard all about seasonal product delays last year for many retailers. Well, this year, the opposite happened. They placed a number of seasonal merchandise orders, and the merchandise actually beat their expectation to the distribution centers and to the stores. So that's resulted in that big year-over-year increase in terms of the amount of inventory. Per store, They do feel pretty comfortable with where they'll be at the end of the fourth quarter, though, noting that a lot of this merchandise increase year over year is indeed seasonal merchandise that they expect to be moved out of the stores. And so far, their sales numbers for the fourth quarter indicate that the seasonal merchandise is moving well, at least better than it was last year. But as we noted in the intro, we were interested to see their path forward on the commercial real estate front. Again, their third quarter earnings calls usually mark their revealing of plans for the next year as far as real estate projects are concerned. To that end, Dollar General announced their intention to embark on around 3,170 total real estate projects in the coming fiscal year. This exceeds the 2,945 projects that are anticipated for the current fiscal year. So no slowing growth for Dollar General as far as openings are concerned. This despite the fact that construction costs are increasing. This despite the fact that because of these construction costs increasing, they're having to strike deals with contractors to sign larger leases, longer term leases, and more expensive leases for areas that they're building stores in. Of these real estate projects for Dollar General, 1,050 are anticipated to be new store openings, so they're opening just over 1,000 new stores next year. 2,000 are planned to be remodels, and 120 are expected to be relocations for Dollar General. For reference, this would be about 25 more new store openings than 2022. Over 200 more remodels, but they are tailing back the relocations just a little bit there will be about five fewer relocations in this coming fiscal year and i should mention these are just their projects planned for the united states they want 35 total stores in mexico by the end of the next fiscal year and of course these stores in mexico something that they have been playing with over the last couple of years one final note dollar general actually gave a lot of information to us on the call as far as how their customer base is shifting behaviors due to inflation. Again, somewhat unlike what other retailers have noted recently, Dollar General has seen trade downs across multiple different customer groups. And we noted this, especially in the off-price categories, a lot of the off-pricers have said, hey, we're not actually seeing trade downs in terms of price what we're seeing is trade downs maybe in terms of fewer items we saw this very same thing from sprouts again we're not seeing trade downs there but people are putting one fewer produce item in their carts well for dollar general they are seeing those trade downs and these are taking place for their customer base both to more affordable products and for private label options so they're seeing their private label penetration increase which is something that has generally been expected in an inflationary context. They also began to see the shopping cadence for their customers be clustered increasingly around the first of the month, and they attributed that to their fixed income customers maybe not having the money to spend at the end of the month. And also those customers that are getting paid once monthly, you're seeing them flood to the stores just after payday to stock up on some items that maybe they had put off purchasing until that payday hit so maybe not a great sign certainly there for the american consumer at the same time more shoppers in total are heading to dollar general overall they saw their second consecutive quarter of traffic gains and some of their traffic gains are coming from customers that are making upper five figures all the way to a hundred thousand dollars for their household income And this has been for them a greater amount of these type of customers than their typical core customer has been in previous years. So the fact that they're seeing a greater spectrum of shoppers across all income levels, that might indicate maybe somewhat of a traffic pullback in the future for maybe higher priced general merchandisers or other general merchandise stores. Maybe also people not wanting to travel in rural areas to the next town to go to say a walmart or a target store they're willing to stay in their smaller town and shop at the local dollar general instead now earlier we mentioned that dollar general has seen product cost increases one of the reasons why their inventory on a dollar basis has increased year over year but management does expect product cost increases to moderate somewhat they certainly stop short though of indicating any type of deflation or reversal of pricing just that the increases will slow down so i think this is an interesting view into what we're seeing from the american consumer at this time we've mentioned it before on the show dollar general is very much a bellwether for how the u.s consumer is doing and the inflationary landscape for dollar general also we should mention increased utilities repairs and maintenance for them just as it did for Dollar Tree and Family Dollar. We continue to feel as though this will be a significant story for retailers in 2023. So a lot going on in terms of the inflationary landscape and how this is affecting Dollar General's customer base. They're seeing more customers come in from higher income groups than they've seen in the past. And I think this might be a potential warning light on the dashboard for some other general merchandisers. As customers continue to flow to the likes of Family Dollar, who saw their traffic increase for the first time in nearly three years this past quarter, and to Dollar General. Well, that'll do it for our news segment of the podcast this week. Coming up, again, we'll be joined by Jasmine Johnson, VP of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at ICSE. We'll talk to her about their Launch Academy, some benefits they've seen from their Launch Academy, and some ways in which maybe the industry can change a narrowing of focus towards A class retail and really focus on diverse neighborhoods and putting valuable retail in these diverse neighborhoods. We referenced it in some of our interviews from ICSC in Las Vegas earlier in the year, but a main theme of that conference was diversity, equity, and inclusion. Currently, the focus on these areas has pushed to the forefront in many industries, but in particular, it touches the world of retail in several ways. Ultimately, most know why it's important to underscore diversity, equity, and inclusion organizationally, but specifically in retail, it can have a far-reaching positive influence, particularly in the world of retail real estate. And joining us to discuss this topic today is Jasmine Johnson, She is the VP of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at ICSC. Jasmine, welcome so much to the show.
1: Thank you, Trent. I appreciate you having
0: me on. We were kind of talking before we started recording, but I'm curious, and just for our listeners out there, how did you get started in the commercial industry and what brought you into retail real estate as a whole?
1: Yeah, so before coming to ICSC, I managed a program for teen parents in Washington, D.C., And at the beginning of 2015, our executive director announced that our organization was shut down at the end of the school year due to funding issues. And I began interviewing, but nothing seemed like the right fit. And at some point in June of that year, a colleague shared a job post from ICSC. I had never heard of the organization before or retail real estate for that matter. But the more I researched, the more I understood how important this organization and our industry was and continues to be to the students that I was serving at the time. Many of the students I worked with had to maintain jobs and unfortunately, there weren't a lot of options for them in their own neighborhood. So many of them had to travel by train and bus to either Northern Virginia or different parts of Maryland to find work. Some of them struggled to find fresh groceries for their children or different products that they needed to raise their children. So after understanding the role that ICSE had in bringing developers and retailers and public sector officials together so that the students I once worked with at the time could have better access to jobs that would then foster upward mobility. I knew that this industry and ICSC was an organization and place that I can find purpose in serving.
0: And so we talk about the way you got into the industry, which is maybe not having a prior knowledge of it, end up at ICSC. Since you started working in the commercial real estate industry, in the retail real estate industry, what do you feel as though maybe some of the current biggest barriers to entry are for those that might be seeking to work in the industry, whether that's from the perspective of someone like your former student or even others that want to get involved somehow?
1: Yes, I think one of the biggest barriers to entry is awareness of the industry. I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about this later on, but we, ICSC's foundation, manages an internship program called the Launch Academy, and we're engaging students of color and preparing them to be successful in our industry. But for a lot of them, they're not familiar with the marketplaces industry or retail real estate. So that awareness, I think, of course, is a pretty significant barrier. But then the other thing is access. Our industry can be very insular in nature. It's very network driven and far too often women and people of color have a hard time accessing these networks.
0: And so you mentioned access I do want to ask you a follow up based on that so what are some ways in which maybe someone from the outside someone that doesn't have those initial network connections can get that access and what are some things that maybe best practices that companies are engaging in to make sure that they're giving that access to networks to everyone that wants an insight into the industry so to speak.
1: Yes, I think membership to organizations like ICSC is really important at the very core of who we are as an organization is our network and making sure that we're creating opportunities for our members to come together. And we offer that in many different ways, whether it's through volunteering with the organization, attending events and our local events for networking opportunities. I think it's really important to be engaged with organizations that create those opportunities. And I think for companies, you know, it's creating pathways or opportunities for their employees to be involved with these organizations. Sometimes we hear that, you know, if you're at an entry level position, you may not be able to attend an ICSE event, but it really contributes to the success that you'll have in this industry. And, you know, I think other organizations or some of our member companies are creating internal groups to help build uh, networks internally, whether it's through employee resource groups or, other professional development opportunities.
0: Now, you mentioned it already, but you talked a little bit about the Launch Academy there at ICSC, which is kind of another mechanism that people have access to that can maybe get into the industry through that, learn a little bit about the industry and network also. What is the Launch Academy? And what are some benefits that you've seen from working from the initiative for the last few years? Of
1: course. So in May of 2021, the ICSE Foundation announced the launch of the Launch Academy. And the goal is to advance racial diversity within the CRE industry. And we are focused on preparing BIPOC, which is Black Indigenous People of Color, students for a career in the marketplaces industry. The program is mutually beneficial. Students receive a paid summer internship with a member company, a mentor, training, and access to industry leaders. While companies gain access to this diverse slate of talent that they would not have Engaged through their traditional means of recruitment. Since summer of 2021, we've placed about 50 students at internships with companies across the country. And the program taps into ICSC's existing relationships with our university partners. We're engaging HBCUs, and it's really designed to make sure that these students have access to the mentors and internships and resources needed that we know will set them up for success within our industry.
0: All right, so we've talked about the Launch Academy program. We've talked about other best practices just in terms of networking. I know you've been involved now in the industry for the better part of a decade. In what areas do you feel as though the largest strides have been made in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion since you got into the industry or since you entered into ICSE?
1: Yeah, so in my role, I am seeing a much more stronger commitment from industry leaders to support DEI focused initiatives. Many of our members are either partnering with ICSC and or introducing internal initiatives to help recruit and develop a more diverse workforce. So I am seeing a lot more effort being put into recruitment of entry level professionals in our industry. I think it's important for our members and your viewers to know that ICSC is also committed to modeling the value of diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout our organization. So we've made commitments at the board level and representation within our team that is, you know, much more reflective of our communities.
0: So I wanted to pivot. Now we've talked a little bit about obviously barriers to entry, ways in which those barriers to entry are slowly being broken down. But one of the first things you mentioned is the fact that a lot of your students that you were working with in your prior position, They were having to take trains or buses to get access to clean food or to get access to shopping centers or to get access to work. And obviously there's room for organizational diversity, of course. But one of the things that we've kind of noticed is a hesitance from many on the investment side. So maybe REITs, banks and so forth to invest in the retail potential of diverse neighborhoods. So maybe that this population doesn't have to take a bus or a train to get access to clean food or jobs. So that we can get shopping centers in some of these neighborhoods what are some of the ways in which you feel the industry can kind of change that narrowing of focus and then widen the scope to see the potential in neighborhoods of more diverse demographics
1: yeah i mean i think the realization that these projects are happening and they're successful i think is really important our team whether it's our content team or our publications team done a really good job of highlighting some of these projects but i think also It goes back to, you know, recruitment and development, right? It's important for us to recruit and develop a workforce that is more reflective of the communities that we serve or our consumer base. And it's also equally, or I guess even more important to ensure that your team has an opportunity to contribute. It's not enough just to have diversity if you're not really leveraging the value of diversity through inclusion and equitable access.
0: And then kind of building off of that a little bit, we've talked throughout about certain things that companies can do or maybe should do to underscore this. And I think you made a great point. Diversity by itself is not necessarily the answer to anything. It's leveraging those diverse viewpoints. But if you could wave a magic wand anywhere throughout the industry and maybe change things or change the thought processes of the existing structure... What would you do? Where would you wave that wand at? What would you want to fix first?
1: Yeah, I need to think about that. I mean, this is a really special wand. Well, one, I think there is this belief that diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives are special programs for women and people of color. But if I had a special wand and I can change the way people view DEI initiatives, I would want them to see that these initiatives, this work, strengthens the entire organization. It makes our industry better. It makes us more innovative, more inclusive, more representative and relevant to the communities that we serve. If I can broaden the understanding of these initiatives and how important they are to our overall well-being, I think that's where I would focus my attention.
0: That's a great answer. And one of the things that I did want to address, and you've already touched on it a little bit, you mentioned how diversity by itself doesn't necessarily mean much unless a company is really putting faith in some of those diverse viewpoints and leveraging that diversity within their organization. We talked to a representative from an executive search firm last year, and they noted that a lot of times businesses sometimes have issues conveying that diversity, equity, and inclusion is part of their identity beyond just the surface level. They have issues really conveying the fact that it is actionable, at their company what are some of the best ways in your opinion for companies to let potential new associates at all levels whether that's executive or on the front lines there know that a focus towards these things is more than just a part of their culture and that they really do take into account all organizational viewpoints
1: yes i think the most significant way to convey that commitment is having diverse representations at every level of the organization right you can't really prove that you're committed to it and you are only seeing diverse representation at the entry level positions or in administrative roles it really needs to be reflected throughout the different departments whether it's entry level or executive level of your organization and going back to a point i made earlier we can't just focus on the hiring right we can't just reach our hiring goals when it comes to diversity without putting as much or even more emphasis on ensuring that we have inclusive and equitable workplace cultures.
0: And then you mentioned, obviously, it's important to have this representation at all levels. But we've, of course, talked on the show in the past about the need for diverse viewpoints and opinions in the C-suites of retailers and also on their boards. But where do you feel the commercial real estate industry or the retail real estate industry is at regarding executive level diversity? And where do you feel it needs to get to?
1: Well, I think we definitely have a long ways to go. The data shows that Racially diverse professionals only account for, I think it's less than 2% of leadership within our industry. And we believe our program and resources are crucial to step toward increasing that number, but there has to be intentionality behind it, right? We must do more to encourage diverse leadership and whether that's at the board level or at the executive level of our organizations.
0: So now let's look ahead towards the future. What excites you about the future of retail real estate, both from maybe an organizational perspective, from the organizations that are generally running things on the retail real estate front, and also from a general macro perspective, just as someone that works at ICSC, what excites you about the future?
1: I mean, I think, as I mentioned earlier, the renewed commitment to increasing diversity within our industry Our members are participating in conversations that we're having. They're driving our programming and really giving us an opportunity to create resources and tools that are relevant and that will support their overall mission of creating or increasing diversity, equity, and inclusion within their organization. So that excites me. As far as ICSE, I am just continuing to learn about the industry and how versatile this industry is. I'm excited to see how the industry will continue to evolve. And I think with the evolution of our industry, we'll start to see more opportunities to welcome new and different talent into our industry.
0: And we'll close out on this if we could, because I kind of wonder, especially given the macro level lack of available retail real estate, especially in many areas that might be class A or class B, throughout the United States obviously landlords have decisions to make regarding businesses that take residence there and we see time in time out national credit tenants sometimes get a little bit more sway than the local tenants do what would you say or what would you do to encourage landlords to maybe give a second look at minority owned businesses that are trying to take station in some of this retail real estate that's out there
1: You know, a lot of our members are thinking more about how they can work with small businesses. We've introduced as an organization, we've introduced a guidebook to help support small businesses, be better prepared to move into brick and mortar space, to have a better understanding of our industry. We're creating opportunities. We actually just hosted our first event in New Orleans, where we were bringing our more traditional members together with smaller businesses where they're able to connect and learn from each other. You know, I just encourage our members to definitely take advantage of the opportunities that ICSC is introducing and then we also are in the early stages of introducing a supplier diversity initiative where we're helping our members to connect with vendors and different contractors to help advance their work which you know we all know has a local impact
0: some great insights there and also some great resources for retail landlords and retailers as well to take a look at going forward. Well, once again, Jasmine Johnson, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today on the show.
1: Thank you, Trent.
0: As always,
1: we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast.
0: Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We appreciate Jasmine taking the time out of her busy schedule to join us and talk about some of these very valuable ICSC initiatives. And as we continue to talk about things like grocery and grocery deserts, some of the things that she alluded to during her interview, I do think it's important to look ahead at a Food Marketing Institute report called The Power of In Store Bakery 2022. So this is our looking ahead story for this week. This is the first year that this report has been produced. And I think it's interesting because one of the things that we've heard grocery retailers in particular talk about is the fact that their square footage is being pushed more towards fresh and more towards some of the in-store offerings. One particular area that's seen more square footage in grocery stores of late is in-store bakery. And I think this study, this survey, certainly spoke to why unit and dollar volumes for the past year for in-store bakery according to the survey were both up unit volumes up 7.4 percent dollar volumes up 14.4 percent obviously this connotes that this is an area where grocers and retailers in general can maybe eke out a little bit of a benefit especially in terms of the margin front because historically Prepackaged bakery or bakery that's served by third parties doesn't necessarily carry with it the margins that in-store bakery might. It also doesn't connote the idea of freshness in the stores. You think of a Hostess donut, nothing against Hostess donuts, of course, but a Hostess donut versus a fresh donut out of a bakery case. Obviously, customers going to gravitate towards that fresh donut a little bit more. The idea of the survey, though, and some of the findings in there, is that grocery stores can actually leverage in-store bakery potentially for the coming year in 2023 to create more impulse buys. Oftentimes we think of impulse buys as being clustered towards the front of the store. But a lot of the people involved in this survey were very honest that some of the sweets that they were buying, so the donuts, the muffins, the cupcakes, they said, hey, these are our impulse buys. And so it kind of changes the grocer's mindset a little bit as to where you put those impulse buys in the store and also the departments in the store that can cultivate that impulse buying and picking up that one extra item for customers that are actually going to the stores. The other thing to note is that the customers that are using these sections in the grocery stores are typically households with an income over $100,000 and large households of three or more people. So basically, you're seeing younger people that are affluent, that have larger families that are using these sections. And if you're a retailer, these are very much demographics that you would like to attract into your store. These type of customers, by the way, are looking, generally speaking, for not only sweets, but also regular items, such as breads or bagels or rolls and 78% of the people in the study noted that they purchased these type of functional items at the same place where they purchase most of their groceries so the reason I'm looking ahead here is we know grocers have an intent to put more square footage towards the bakery section of their stores how will some of the major grocery chains leverage this further going ahead and we've seen chains like Kroger for example place a huge emphasis on freshness and the outer reaches of the store to drive sales. How will other regional grocers follow suit? And I think there are a lot of grocers in the US that could really stand to grow this category in 2023. I think if you visit Spartan Nash stores as an example, they strike me as a store chain that could really see some potential growth in Bakery because this is a section of the store that's maybe underutilized for them. You could say the same of certain Albertsons chain stores as well. There are obviously chains that are doing it very well in terms of in-store bakery. Of course, Kroger comes to mind. Walmart's usually fared pretty well in terms of in-store bakery. But I do think 2023 will be an interesting year in terms of how grocers try to attract people to the edges of the store for these impulse buys. How they leverage the additional square footage they're giving to bakery as a way of kind of pulling some sales to more or less private label products or store brand products because that's after all what the in-store bakery essentially is for these grocers with products sometimes carrying higher margins and if all of this is the case you know shelf space we always talk about it it is at a premium in grocery stores so if in-store bakery grows as a segment does this begin to take market share away from prepackaged bakery? And do we start to see shelf space maybe taken from some of the typical players in the space that are producing prepackaged rolls and breads and sweets? I think there's a lot of dialogue to be had surrounding bakery, surrounding bread products in the year 2023. And certainly something we'll keep an eye on for the next 12 months is how retailers are doling out this shelf space and how customers respond to those changes in-store. Well, that'll do it for us here on the Retail Focus Podcast. For Layton, I'm Trent saying so long until, well, it's, it'll be a short week. This episode got delayed in being put together due to flight delays and me not having a microphone as I was stuck in California for a few days, but... We'll be back with another episode here in about another five days and then we'll take a week off for the holiday season. So we thank all of you for listening once again and we'll be back with you soon. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.